This year marks the 100th anniversary of an event that saw troops from both sides in the First World War engage in unofficial ceasefires at random points across the Western Front. The UK saw the release of a poignant and heartwarming advert from Sainsbury's, in partnership with the Royal British Legion, that had the viewer emotionally captivated by what took place at a special time of the year in the war's first year. In many respects, the advert had done its job of commemorating the event, and has helped promote the aspects of the truce, such as men engaged in aspects of fraternisation, cordial singing and festive cheer, as well as highlighting that at those parts of the trenches that saw little action, fraternisation did actually happen. As a teacher myself, it is something I get the students to examine and understand each Christmas, through a dedicated lesson. Yet within that same lesson, I make the students aware that the so-called Christmas truce of 1914 is not an isolated event. It is interesting to think beyond the festivities of that year, and begin to explore how soldiers in other conflicts before and since have approached Christmas in warfare. One particular event I like to look at is something that has become known as the Great Snowball Fight of 1863, a lesser-known curiosity that took place during the American Civil War. It is very misleading, and might be brought into question why I ever included it in such a lesson, as it was not an event that took part at Christmas time, nor is it an event that involved or concerned two combatant sides in a given conflict. Yet, I include it because it does have similarities and importance, for it shows a human side to war and conflict, how individuals through experiencing hardship, fatigue, misery and pain experience moments of escapism, and hearing what took place uplifts an individual's soul. As this podcast will show, it actually shares a lot of similarities. As one veteran record of events, the noise was terrific and the excitement intense, but nobody was hurt. When we read or hear about the fraternisation in the trenches by First World War veterans, we get a similar heartwarming feel. We ended up with Old Lang Syne, which we all, English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, Wittenbergers, joined in. It was absolutely astounding. These words by Captain Sir Edward Hulse emphasise the point quite clearly. So why exactly was there a massive snowball fight taking place within the Confederate ranks during the American Civil War? Many of the men that formed the 15th Regiment of Alabama had took part in the fighting with Stonewall Jackson's Corps during the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862. With the battle being a Confederate success, morale and spirits were high amongst the troops. One soldier in the 15th Alabama Regiment remembered passing the time singing old times sacred music songs and it was felt by many that it would not be long before the war would reach its natural conclusion. The winter season was apt for many of the Confederate troops in late 1862 and early 1863, as it gave them a chance to recuperate, rest and recover. Along with singing, troops would engage in swapping stories, writing love letters or playing cards. Yet, although spirits were high, boredom and want of something to do was something that plagued many of those within the regiment. Arguments and animosity builds up over time. Too much inactivity becomes more destructive as time goes on. 
the perfect opportunity to starve off boredom and any thoughts of the horrors they had experienced in combat was to take advantage of the natural climate and geography. Snowball fights. The snowball fights in January of 1863 started off in a minute way. Pockets of men within a regiment then developed into the whole regiment pitting itself against one another and then growing into a sort of inter-regiment contest. A contest between another regiment. Amusingly, while this snowball fight was growing, Professor Thaddeus Lowe, who was working for the Union, was trying to gather intelligence for his reconnaissance by travelling up in a hot air balloon. Yet he would not have seen Confederate generals drilling or marching his men as his hot air balloon reached its dizzying heights, but instead two to three thousand Confederate soldiers engaging in heavy-handed snowball fights. The men continued through the day building more elaborate snowballs. All the energy that had been built up and hibernating was being unleashed not through muskets and cannons, but through snow. This, in many ways, allows us to witness a human side amongst the brutalities of war and conflict. Yet the merriment did arguably take a step too far. Many of the soldiers were overzealous. Men would frantically build up a stockpile of snowballs, trying to outmaneuver their opponents with sheer number. This undoubtedly led to some snowballs being scooped up and made containing shards of glass, rock and stone. Through this, many soldiers did get superficial injuries, with some requiring attention for their battle wounds. By the end of the day, it was estimated that 9,000 men in all had took part in the mock battles with snowballs. Incidentally, two men did suffer serious wounds. Yet, to a historian, what is interesting may not necessarily be the sheer numbers of men, but more the fact that this was not an isolated event during the course of the Civil War. In fact, in February 1863, we are able to document a return to snowball fights amongst another regiment, the 3rd South Carolina, pitted against regiments from Georgia. In the month of March 1864, a snowball fight broke out as well within Dalton, Georgia, when two brigades of a Kansas regiment attacked each other simply as a way to break the routine of camp life and interrupt the training schedule. Through the memoirs and personal records of men that fought in these fights, we are presented with some interesting terminology. The troops delight in snowballing and reveled in the sport for days at a time. Many hard battles were fought, won and lost, sometimes company against company, then regiment against regiment, and sometimes brigades pitted against rival brigades. Reading this selected part from the memoir would instill in us dread, anguish and horror, if it were not for the initial sentence about revelry and sportsmanship. Instead we perceive an image of schoolchildren playing on the snow-covered fields, or carefree Victorian adults playing childish games. In many ways, that is what it was. The same memoir talks about being marshalled, the beating of drums, bugles blasting and officers shouting to their men, Stand fast and uphold the honour of your state. In many ways, these men, alluding to war themes in their fights, is no different to their young sons back home playing toy soldiers. By its inclusion, it is more escapism for the men rather than glorifying warfare. In many ways this is a degree of similarity I feel 
with those men in the trenches in the First World War. Take, for example, the words of Colin Wilson of the Grenadier Guards. We heard a German singing Holy Night, in German, naturally. These Germans shouted out, What about you singing Holy Night? Well, we had a go. After a time, we were allowed a limited number of us to go into no man's land. By singing carols, the soldiers on both sides of the trench were breaking down the walls of the war they were fighting in. By singing a song cordially with the enemy for that brief moment, there was no warfare between the men, but a glimpse of escapism where they cooperated together. The historian Tony Ashworth wrote about a system called Live and Let Live, where non-aggression in a spontaneous nature arises within a situation like a war. In many regards, this phrase explains the impetus behind the actions of those men in 1914, as it does with the brief moments of horseplay those Confederate soldiers experienced in 1862 and 1863. The similarity is that for the men in 1862 and 1914 is that, even in times of war, they broke into forms of escapism. However, we do have to be careful when examining and analysing the background behind these two events and drawing similarities. There are many stark differences that cannot be ignored or glossed over. The biggest difference is that what the soldiers did in the trenches in 1914 was done in concordance with the enemy. This, according to the historian Dan Snow, made the high command very angry. Their fears were that the men would now question the war, possibly even go as far as deserting their posts at the front, because the fraternisation drew them to lose faith in the war. A diary from the 2nd of January 1915 recorded how an officer, or a non-commissioned officer, found to be adopting such a position would be court-martialed. When we compare this to the Great Snowball Fight of 1862, and the other lesser snowball fights during the Civil War, it was not between the Confederates and the Union. In fact, during the February 1863 snowball fight between the Georgians and the Carolinians, one can read how Colonel Rutherford of the 3rd Carolinian was involved in the fight alongside lowest commissioned recruits. Yet unlike the clear order made by the British High Command in 1914 against fraternisation and its effects, no such order was made by the highest command within the Confederate Army. In many respects, much of this hinges on the fact that the former was based on fraternisation, and such fraternisation could have a direct impact on the prowess of the army. The latter took place during a period of downtime, where troops were hampered to fight because of the weather. It would make sense for snowball fights to continue or be allowed, because it helped boost morale and starve off the issues that accompanied boredom. This is too important to gloss over. In addition, morale is another focal point of difference. Morale was a key point of concern for the High Command in 1914. The war had just begun a few months before, and the High Command most certainly feared the longer impact of fraternisation on morale and a soldier's impetus to fight. When we examine the Confederate position between 1862 and 1863, we see it at its zenith, for after the Battle of Fredericksburg, morale was at its height. Much of this, however, was, according to many first-hand accounts, because the men thought that the war would be over very soon. 
Even President Jefferson expressed, and I quote, By resolute perseverance in the path we have hitherto pursued, we have every reason to expect that this will be the closing year of the war. This is also important, as it means the snowball fights are going to be seen through the lens of a less critical eye. Lastly, it must be noted that the Christmas truce of 1914 did not occur in 1915, nor did it occur in 1916. This in itself captivates the historian to question why December 1914 produced a reaction in result, whereas other Christmases in the war did not. Without digressing too much, one could argue that the war changed dramatically from 1915 onwards, in that it became impossible for the live-and-let-live philosophy to shine as much as it did in the first year. Dan Snow, in his writings about the war, argues that changes in the way that the war was fought, in essence, the relentless stalemate in the trenches and the staggering effects of bombardment and over-the-top pushes, changed how the enemy were perceived. The Germans became demonised in the eyes of the men that fought them. No longer was the Tommy interested in exchanging gifts or fraternising with the enemy. During the Civil War, snowball fights within the regimental ranks did continue as this podcast has shown, because it was not affected at all by these factors. It seems a blatant difference in comparison, and one might question why such a comparison is made at all. Yet it is important to make this clear. Why? Well, it makes the similarities more poignant, as a remembrance of how warfare does have a human side to it. The fraternisation that went on in the trenches, in the horseplay that was shown by Confederate troops, tell us that despite the killing and destruction made by these armies, those armies contained real men, with real emotions and real feelings. In addition, we see glimpses of men from both examples engaging in acts of escapism, only to be halted when the war changed beyond all recognition for the men at the Western Front. Yet this need to escape tells us something about men in combat be it in the Confederate Army in 1862 or 1863, or in the trenches for the British, French or German in 1914. Men were pushed and pulled in different directions by forces beyond their control. As the writer Eric Hoffer would say about escapism, it's a last word, Men stagger through life, yapped at by his reason, pulled and shoved by his appetites, whispered to by fears, beckoned by hopes. Small wonder then, that what he craves most is self-forgetting. 